Hi, this is Will Gadara, and welcome back to Weekly Specials. Appreciate you joining us here now on the other side of Labor Day. It's interesting. I woke up on the Tuesday after Labor Day feeling the same sensation I feel every year that morning. The motivation <laughs> and a bit of the stress that it's time to go back to work. But this has been an interesting season because, well... With everything going on, there was no standard form of vacation over the course of the summer. And going back to work, well, it feels wholly different this time. But still, talking to all the people in my life right now, it does feel like right now is a transition. It would be reckless to say that we are on the other side of this. But at the very least, I think it's safe to say that there is some some progress, some evolution. Just moments before recording this, I read that New York City is going to be bringing back indoor dining, albeit only at 25% as of September 30th. We're moving in the right direction. The future is extraordinarily uncertain. Who knows what the fall will bring? What with the changing of weather and election season, all of that. But there is movement. And it's at times like this that I like to look back I'd acknowledge the good things about the season that's ending. The pandemic, the quarantine, it was so difficult for all of us, but I have not talked to anyone that hasn't had the wherewithal to at least find a few silver linings. And considering the conversation that you're going to hear today, I wanted to focus on one, which I've mentioned before, but one of the things that I've told people in the past when they find themselves frustrated with where they're at in their career is to pause and do your best to remember what it was that compelled you to go into the business you're in the first place. And if you can remember that, that beautiful, youthful exuberance that draw you in to whatever it is you're doing. For me, it's obviously been restaurants. I was drawn into restaurants when I was a kid because I loved the idea of throwing a party every night. I loved the idea of creating a little magical world in a world that needs more magic. For me, it started during my first meal at the Four Seasons where, I mean, I was a kid, I was wearing my Brooks Brothers blazer with the gold buttons. And for the three hours that I was there, the entire world faded away. And I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And during the challenging moments in my career, I always tried to remember that. The thing that got me so excited to go into the restaurant business because it was remembering that, that re-motivated me to continue doing it, even during the hardest times. I think for a lot of us, tapping into those emotions are when you think back to when you were a kid. One of the other things I've found is how many people have spent time in their childhood bedrooms over the past four months. And you'll see kind of the the youthful fun and, and hope and optimism in the tone of my next guest's voice because I was interviewing her in her childhood bedroom. I was talking to someone the other day as I was just musing on how many opportunities people have to choose a new path forward during this time. And the piece of advice that they were sharing with one of our friends was think back to what you wanted to be when you grew up when you were a kid and see how close you can come to doing that. I guess all of this is to say that in this last season, we've had more moments for reflection and opportunities to regain perspective than we've all collectively had in a really long time. We've had more time to reconnect with our families. Some of us have even had more time to spend a night or two in our childhood bedrooms. And we all 
have the ability to choose with intention where we want to go from here. And so my advice, remember, what did you want to be when you grew up, when you were a kid? Or what was it that made you fall in love with the path you ended up choosing in the first place? If you can tap into both of those things, everything starts to feel a whole lot easier and a whole lot more fun. So this interview coming up, this is actually our last official episode of this season's podcast. But we'll be back in a few weeks because we are now getting ready to introduce what we are envisioning as the Welcome Conference this year. We spent a lot of time trying to figure this out. We obviously canceled the conference at Lincoln Center back in June. We also weren't able to do the one in Chicago In the absence of being able to come together in person, it felt as if doing a conference at all was impossible. But I think we all can agree that this is a season where our industry needs what we get from that conference more than ever. The opportunity to fill one another's gas tanks, to be inspired, to remember why we we get up and do this every day. And so we felt motivated to do something. And so in October, we're going to launch a five-month-long digital conference. Each one of those months will have a theme, and those themes will focus on the things that we believe we all need to collectively embody in order to survive during the season and thrive on the other side of it. And within each theme, we're going to be offering different types of content, keynote speeches from extraordinary people that can lend us amazing insight and perspective. We're going to be engaging in conversations with industry leaders. We're going to air uh, special episodes of this podcast all focused on those themes. And we're going to do all of that within a new platform we're putting together, where not only is that content available, but where hopefully we can also give our industry an opportunity to connect as a community, much like we've always done in the lobby and between sessions at the conference itself. If you want to join us, registration is free and is now open at welcomeconference.org. My colleague, Anthony Rudolph, has put a ton of time into this, and I think what he's come up with is pretty remarkable, so I hope you'll check it out. But that starts in a few weeks. For right now, we have our last official conversation to end this season of Weekly Specials. I'm excited for you to check it out. Welcome back to Weekly Specials. It's the Weekly Specials. Weekly Specials. Good news. Coming at you, the weekly specials. Weekly specials. Good news coming at you. My guest this week is Kushbu Shah, restaurant editor at Food and Wine Magazine. After spending time writing for GQ, Bon Appetit, Eater, and Thrillist, she joined Food and Wine last fall. I'm really excited to have her here today because. I've had a lot of conversations with my colleagues in the restaurant industry about the food media's role during the pandemic and, well, perhaps even more importantly, coming out of it. But I've never actually had one of those conversations with someone who was actually in the food media. And also, everyone I've interviewed to date, I know or I've known for some measure of time before this, in many cases through the IRC, but this is our first time meeting. And so I'm experiencing right now the awkward yet lovely joy of meeting someone over Zoom. I'm so excited that you're here. Thank you for taking time with us. Welcome to Weekly Specials. Thank you. What a fun way to, yeah, meet people from my childhood bedroom in Michigan. Not a <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> How long have you been back in Michigan? 
Since April, actually. So I was in the process, my lease was up in New York. I was in the process of moving to LA, actually, when the pandemic hit just a couple weeks before I was planning on moving. And so my parents were like, why don't you just, you know, come back to Michigan? Like, you have a room for a few weeks and we can figure out the situation. A few weeks has obviously turned out to be a few months. I'm hoping still to move in the fall. We'll see. Just like, yeah, I think I want the world to feel a little bit safer before I hop on a plane. So, (laughs) And what's the dynamic? One of the silver linings that I've heard from so many people is like, man, I'm getting so much more time with family, but I think they're normally referring to their husband or wife and kids. How has it been living with your parents for that long? I'm you know, you regress really intensely. I feel like I've been like blasting a lot of incubus and like slamming my doors a lot. You know, (laughs) (laughs) there's like a a muscle memory to it of like being in the space. No, but you know, I have one sibling, he's 17 and it's actually really nice to get, we're very close and it's nice to be able to actually spend a lot of time with him in a way that I've not been able to in many years. You know, I left when I was 17 to go to college and, you know, he was quite young at that point. He was five. And so, Uh, It's been a lot of time. He's very much a teenager, so that's also very interesting. But, uh, you know, it's great. I'm also very lucky to be very close to my parents. And so getting time like this, I think, you know, it's definitely more of a blessing than it is a curse. Yeah, it's a gift. Yeah. As much as I miss my independence sometimes, me and my mom, like, feud over, you know, just, like, the weird ingredients. Not weird, but just the ingredients that are weird to her that I keep bringing into the house to, like, cook the things that I like. (laughs) <laughs> and taking up her refrigerator space. <laughs> <laughs> a time like this is time that you would never have had again. Yeah. Uh, I can't think of any reason why, you know, I would have come home unless it was for like a really tough circumstance. Yeah. For this many months. So there's been a, a quote that I've probably knowing myself said on this show a bunch of times already, but a friend of mine is a pastor and he heard this woman in his church say, I pray that the things we're being forced to do today are things we choose to do tomorrow. And like, it's been the same, whether it's me and my wife or friends or my dad, who I'm talking to all the time, as much as I thought I used to talk to him, I would have always said my dad and I are super close. We talk at least a few times a week, but in reality, we probably weren't. Yeah. My hope is that on the other side of this, when the world returns to whatever new normal we find ourselves in, that those relationships I invest in as much then as I'm being forced to now. Yeah, I agree. I think sometimes we're on like Zoom a little too much, but me and my cousins, like we do kind of an occasional Zoom check-in, like maybe once a month right now. And like, it feels awesome because we're all over the country and it's really nice to be able to like, just have kind of that regular check-in. I think it's actually made all of us a lot closer, which is great. Awesome. So, okay. First, like a quick level set, which is, so what have you been doing since this all started? So you're in Michigan. I know Okay, you published the Best New Chefs list in Mm -hmm. June, and I'd love to talk about that. Like, I would imagine you had done the work for that before all of this started? Yeah, I basically reported an entire magazine and then re-reported an entire magazine. It was incredible. (laughs) But you struggled a little bit with whether to release it during this time. Can you talk us through that? 100%. I mean, you know, as someone whose job it is to make two lists a year, best new restaurants and best new chefs. Like I actually very much struggle with the act of list making. I've been very open and honest with it. I go back and forth between, you know, what is the point of this? And like, I, you know, there is actually some merit and purpose to this. Yeah. And then, you know, to release like best new restaurants in the middle of like a pandemic when like restaurants are just 
they're closing left, right, and central, you know, it's such a struggle. Like it felt sort of weird. Yeah. Sorry. I'm not very eloquent when I think about this kind of stuff. It just, it really felt weird to like put out a best new restaurants list where you sort of unintentionally pitted restaurants against one another, right? Only like a handful can be the best and like the rest of them don't count, but it's not because they don't have, it sounds like it's because they don't have merits or they're not good enough or whatever. That's not the case. It just didn't, you know, meet a certain set of criteria. I don't know. But at the same time, you know, I wanted to give a shout out to all these restaurants that had done just like truly incredible work. And like, they deserve recognition for their work, you know, the teams behind these restaurants and all of them had also, you know, had really incredible approaches to the pandemic. Like they had all kind of quote unquote pivoted in many different ways. And all of them were like deeply invested in their communities, which is something I really loved about all my best restaurant picks this year. And so I wanted to also highlight that sort of work that they're doing, you know, as much as I think we need to fix a lot in this industry, um, as far as restaurants go, as far as food media goes, as far as food media coverage of restaurants go, <laughs> you know, there's a lot that needs to be fixed, but I also want to acknowledge, like, it's important to me to acknowledge like just how resilient people are that like work in this industry and, you know, the people that don't chase, like that are not ego driven, like they don't chase things just you know, to placate their own egos, like the people that are actually deeply invested in their communities, like the work that they're doing is like really wonderful. And is like something, you know, I hope to see way more of as we go forward. Well, I'm glad you did release it. And by the way, I think of all the lists, Best New Restaurants is the ideal one because it's not like every restaurant in America is even in contention. Do you know what I mean? And so it's not like everyone not on the list is a loser. But the reason why I think it's so cool, I believe that part of the human condition, you derive just as much pleasure, if not more, out of giving someone else congratulations as you do from receiving it. Mm -hmm. And by the time June came around, there was really not much in the way of reasons to congratulate anyone for anything. Yeah. You could thank people. There were plenty of opportunities to thank people who were being very generous and working super hard in spite of the challenging times to give to other people. But a moment of congratulations had disappeared. And when your list came out and when the James Beard nominations came out, there were two moments when I found myself reaching out to people and just saying congrats. <laughs> and I feel like we're in this crazy time when you're like, in many ways, people kind of look down on people who are celebrating anything, but I do believe moments of celebration are still important. Yeah, a hundred percent. Everyone, you know, everyone on this list, everyone who didn't make it on the list also, you know, has put an incredible amount of hard work into their business. And then, you know, it's, I think it's even dealing with the pandemic is incredibly tough for any restaurant. I think a restaurant in its first year of business is up against another set of challenges that maybe a restaurant that is, you know, 10 years in is not in that they're just establishing their regulars or just establishing their processes, you know, their flow, like they're just getting into a rhythm, like Nixa Taqueria, which is one of the restaurants on the list was telling me that like they had their best month ever. And then the pandemic hit, like they went from like just starting to get, you know, to this, they're, they were starting to really climb and like become like really profitable, you know, et cetera. And then, you know, it just wham, like, yeah. <laughs> and so I wanted to make sure, yeah, to acknowledge this, the work that these places have done, you know, um, it doesn't, the pandemic doesn't change the fact that they're incredibly deserving. Of, yeah. 
accolades. So you talked about how like it's been cool to watch people pivot and do interesting creative things. Can you share? Because I always think it's inspiring to hear what other people are doing as people try to figure out what they should do. What are a couple yeah. of them super um, I'm really impressed with Golden Diner in New York City. Sam and his team, you know, they think it's it was really important to them, especially because where they're located is sort of this it's kind of, I think it's called Two Bridges or something like that. It's like a corner of like where Chinatown meets the Lower East Side. And it's kind of like a very interesting area as far as like, it hasn't been like super gentrified, et cetera. Yeah, you know, it's like the one corner of Manhattan that hasn't <laughs> been maybe. And for Sam and his team, is very important that they were able to still feed, you know, their community. And so they launched these things called Happy Meals, $7, giant portions, things that they don't necessarily always put on their menu. You know, he was working with his suppliers also to like negotiate down the price, the cost of goods, basically. He wasn't really profiting off of it, but he just wanted to make sure he wasn't like, <laughs> that he could like maintain, sell, like offering the community like super affordable, you know, $7 should, it could be two meals or it's like a giant meal for two people, you know? And I think that's, you know, something like that is like very important. The team at Kalaya, you know, not only are they, I mean, man, Noka Kalaya, she is amazing. Like I, she's just, like a superhero. You honestly. can't see this at home, but the body language around this moment <laughs> is one of profound celebration and reverence. So I just want to make sure everyone <laughs> understands that. Okay, continue. I'm impressed with Nook for many reasons. First, her closet is unbelievable. I've never met someone <laughs> with a better sense of style. She's absolutely hilarious. So sharp. But like the moment the pandemic happened, she just like jumped into action in a way that like is unbelievable. You know, all these restaurants... Are, have suddenly shut down. They have so much stuff in their walk-ins, et cetera, right? She's like, come bring all your stuff to my kitchen. We'll just like whip it up. You know, we'll serve it to the community. Anyone who needs a hot meal can get a hot meal. So on one hand, she's doing this at Kalaya. Then she's also cooking hundreds and thousands of meals for healthcare workers. And then, you know, on top of that, like she's also trying to manage how to like keep her business afloat. <laughs> like, yes. you know, she's doing all of this at once, but like is very much putting, you know, her community and like everyone around her, like no matter what obstacle kind of comes up, she's like, you know, we can handle it. Like, we just want to make sure that kind of everyone is fed at the end of the day. I love that. Yeah. It's been really, it's been really nice to see. Yeah. Okay. You, you wrote an article about like what some just, it seemed like stream of consciousness, but like, I really liked reading it. Like, I think it was called hospitality when restaurants can't be hospitable. And just kind of like talking about the experience a little bit. And it made me think like, what is the article, like criticism when critics can't criticize. <laughs> <laughs> and this is one of the things that I've been surprised by. I was, I was kind of bracing myself. And obviously right now I don't have a restaurant. This doesn't affect me directly mm -hmm. like it would have a year ago, but I was bracing myself and you've seen it on Yelp, by the way, the people on Yelp, are just as terrible now as they were before, but it makes them seem more terrible because of the state of restaurants. And I was bracing myself for critics being like really, really, really critical uh -huh. during a time when like the very places that their jobs are to criticize could go away forever. And it hasn't happened. Yeah. And instead there's been like a beautiful support. Mm -hmm. Yet at the same time, there are restaurant critics where do those worlds intersect? The world between like wanting to support the industry yeah. that effectively gives all of us like this ecosystem, mm -hmm. but also still having that word in a title. And I'm not saying that's your job, but right. you're a part of that world. And so it's interesting to talk to you about it. 
Yeah. Yeah. I'm very clear that I'm not a restaurant critic. You know, it's a restaurant editor's job. I think is very, I do make these lists, but you know, I don't necessarily write critically about a singular. No, you're just the closest person I have on this to this. And so you're, I'm just interested. This is not a hot seat or anything. I'm just interested in your, in your thoughts on it. Yeah, it's uh, it's been very interesting. I'm lucky to be friends with a lot of, you know, really brilliant minds. A lot of them happen to be restaurant critics, you know, and it's a conversation that I've had with many of them. I, you know, I think the, the role of the restaurant critic has been evolving even before the pandemic. I think as, you know, people finally realize that food writing and culture, et cetera, is just not about like what's in front of you. You know, there's so many other elements. It's just not about the act of eating or the act of cooking. You know, food intersects with pretty much every other topic in the world, you know. Um, And so I think that's affected a critic's job in many ways, too. And so I think critics are still doing criticism. I just don't think it's traditional restaurant criticism. I think they've more moved into roles of like cultural critics, like restaurant culture critics, food culture critics. And they're thinking about the industry more than necessarily like a singular restaurant experience while also trying to champion businesses, you know, that they are, they believe in like through takeout, et cetera. A thing you'll notice, right, is that no restaurant critic can actually do their job as they were like hired to do it right at the moment. Every single one of them pretty much that I can think of even across at the local levels too, like have written publicly that they do not feel comfortable dining at restaurants right now, especially indoors. Most of them also do not feel safe, you know, doing outdoors, not just at the risk of their own lives, but putting other people's lives at risk, especially restaurant staff. And so, yeah, I think a lot of them, you know, if you look at Tejal Rao's work, you look at Soleil Ho's work, like Bill Addison's work, you know, Ryan Sutton's work. Ryan has always been kind of analyzing at Eater. Like he's always been kind of analyzing the financial and like the math, like kind of perspective around the restaurant industry kind of from the beginning. But I think you'll, you start to see a lot more of that now in his writing or like, you know, Tato just dropped a piece about the chef auteur, you know, yesterday, or, you know, Soleil is like always analyzing you know other aspects of the industry not necessarily just like a meal but like she also you know so they also uses her newsletter to like hype you know restaurants that like she's been getting takeout from that she's been really enjoying you know it's so yeah it's trying to strike this balance of like supporting small businesses but also thinking critically and writing critically about things that do need to change and in the industry yeah at large if that makes sense no, it does make sense. When, like, when do you think, how long before there are starred reviews out there in the world again? <laughs> I don't know. Actually, that's very interesting. I'm curious to see how restaurant criticism evolves. As, as with everything, I don't think it's necessarily going to go back to what it was pre-pandemic. You know, I just don't think the, industry, the restaurant industry is going to go back to what it was pre-pandemic. And I think certain things have just started to matter, like, way more. They were things that already mattered, but I think we didn't realize like just how much of a gap there was as far as like equity goes, as far as like fair treatment goes, as far as, you know, valuing labor beyond chefs, um, as far as like writing about, you know, food justice, food sovereignty, and like how those impact um, the restaurant industry. Like, you know, those things are starting to be talked about and touched on. It's not like people weren't doing this work, but I think there's just a much bigger chasm than like people realized there was. Um, And I think the pandemic has just like revealed that. And so, you know, I think food criticism, you know, I feel like when Me Too happened, there was kind of this like debate that kind of went on 
the quote unquote discourse uh, that went on, you know, where there were some critics that came out being like, I'm just here to review the food. Like, I'm not going to talk about like me too, or like the behavior of a chef or anything like beyond it. Like, that's not my job. But on the other hand, it is, you know, essentially at the end of the day, like how a chef treats their staff is as much a part of the business as the food in front of you at a restaurant. You know, it's it's all parts of that ecosystem. And I think a restaurant critic's job is to evaluate the entire ecosystem. Got it. You've talked about this before, like just the fact that so much attention is paid to the chef and not enough to all the people that work within mm-hmm. that ecosystem. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, this is interesting. This is also, again, more discourse, TM. Uh, that's going on. You know, there is this idea that we shouldn't be writing about chefs anymore, or we should be completely decentering chefs from the food writing uh, narrative, which I actually don't agree with. I think there's this old guard of chefs that maybe, I think it's lionizing of chefs that we need to stop. You know, at the end of the day, a restaurant is a collaborative business, but like, I think most businesses are actually collaborative at the end of the day too, right? Like when we talk about cookbooks, we that coverage is also about the cookbook author. You know, it's not always about the photographer and the copy editor and the editor and the designer, you know, like a cookbook is touched by at least what, 10 to 15 people, but like the person that we give credit to at the end of the day, right. It's ultimately the author's vision in the way that like, I think a restaurant, especially by a chef owner, like it's ultimately that person's vision. Right. And we're like, their staff is executing their vision. And I don't see why we shouldn't be, you know, talking about this person's story. I just, I think during this pandemic, I think this thing has only become heightened that people fail to hold multiple things to be true at once. Like, I think we do need to stop lionizing chefs. You know, I think there is a lot that we need to be doing as far as writing about the value of labor, the value of the other people that are part of this ecosystem. You know, there's a lot of stories that need to be written about them. But that doesn't mean that we need to stop writing about chefs in the process. Also, you know, I think we just need to stop writing about chefs that are terrible people, you know, that like, unless we're writing critically about them, like we just need to stop writing about chefs who don't pay their staff well and don't respect them well, you know, like, and we also need to be writing about dishwashers and sous chefs and bartenders and barbacks and like every other part of that ecosystem. There just needs to be more stories, you know, from more perspectives at the end of the day. I resonate with what you said about the world since the pandemic started. The metaphor I used actually on a call with the Welcome Conference team a couple of days ago is we're in a season where if life is a football field, you're only allowed to stand in one of the two end zones. Right. Like it so much is a zero sum game right now. And like you need to be very adamant about one opinion or the other. And right. that's it. And I... I think it's, well, A, it flies in the face of those that do what I do, which is like, we're meant to try, like, <laughs> kumbaya, everyone get along. But right. I also think it's, I think it's important and it's passion, but also kind of unhealthy sometimes. Yeah. I find that I wish more people could hold space to celebrate things while also being critical of things at the same time. I think both parts of this are very necessary and both things can be true at once. You know, I struggle with this idea that we should be decentering chefs completely from these stories when I find that a lot of the people I like to cover, you know, are chefs of color, non-white chefs, chefs that are not traditionally like necessarily 
that haven't necessarily always been covered, you know, by food media, especially by like legacy publications. And the idea that I shouldn't be covering them, I, you know, in their stories, like in their vision and their perspectives, like, I just don't think that that's like a fair notion, you know, at the end of the day. Yeah. Okay. Before you said, when I said, what, when will the start system come back? You're like, I don't know that criticism will be the same in the same way. I don't know the restaurants will be the same. I think this is the impossible question to answer. And also a really interesting question to have conversation around. How do you think the restaurant business is going to change? And I'm talking about like, in a very superficial, like, yes, I think everyone is very hopeful that we rebuild an industry that's better than the one mm-hmm. that we set out to rebuild in the first place. And that's not just restaurateurs. That's also the world recognizes that restaurants probably need to cost more. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big thing that not enough people are talking about is you can't pay a lot of people more unless the guests start paying more first. And right. I'd love for that story to get out there. But I'm, I'm, so I'm not talking about like the height, like the cultural stuff, but just like, what do you think the restaurant world in a public facing way is going to evolve into. I'm actually working on a story about that, how we don't pay enough for food in America. Like uh, it's actually something I'm like researching and reporting on right now. So check back. I love that. Line.com. I love- <laughs> Pandemic brain. Yeah, yeah. Everything is just infinitely harder right now. And takes- I'm excited that you're doing that. Thank you for doing that. It's something I've struggled with for a very long time. You know, I have a lot of family in India and like 30% to 40% of um, income, like on average in India goes towards food. And it's very interesting that like, I think we use something like 5% on average of our incomes towards food, which is the lowest in the world, uh, even amongst other nations with similar GDPs. And so it's very, yeah, it's very fascinating. And I think it affects the system in many ways. But again, turn to foodandwine.com when, <laughs> whenever that story drops. <laughs> um, yeah, as you know, I'm a perpetual optimist. I don't know if that'll eventually be my downfall one day. I'm hopeful that, you know, the industry that emerges is an industry where, you know, I know Danny Meyer says that like, is reneging on, you know, no tipping or, you know, that policy. But I've been talking to, I'm also working on a tipping story. Surprise, surprise. I've been talking to a lot of small restaurant owners, you know, people that don't have the resources that Danny does, you know, or these like larger restaurant groups do that have overhauled their models to eliminate tipping. And they've managed to do it in a pandemic, you know, for them, it's just so unacceptable to like no long, like it's just unacceptable for them to not take care of their people at the co- you know that that they will do anything in their power to like make sure that their employees you know are looked after to the best of their ability i also you know i worry about <laughs> right now i'm in like deep suburbia michigan where it's just so many chain restaurants and i'm like very scared that like this will be the future it's just me driving from chain parking lot to chain parking lot you know if there's no government assistance in any sort of way for a lot of these smaller businesses Uh, I'm very deeply afraid of that future. You know, I think I wake up every day and I think right now the pace I'm kind of seeing is like two to three of my, two to three restaurants that I love, you know, have closed pretty much every single day. Um, So that means there's so many other restaurants that I don't even know about that are also closing, you know, and that, 
Yeah. And a lot of these restaurants that I really love, I thought were incredibly successful places that I thought might be able to ride this pandemic out. And that's not quite sure. It was not quite true. I also, you know, I'm not, I'm actually very curious about your thoughts on this, the space for kind of fine dining and like ultra fine dining, you know, I'm not sure there's actually that much space for it. Or I think it'll be something that kind of becomes something just for the ultra wealthy, you know, it's it'll be completely catered to just that kind of audience, like the people that have that kind of money and that kind of disposable income to spend and are able to spend it, uh, not at the cost of something else. Well, that's yeah. it. I'll, I'll, I'll share my thoughts on that. Yeah. And I can honestly argue it pretty passionately in either direction. Yeah. On one hand, I could say exactly what you're saying that what is the place for fine dining when I come out of this? I'm craving experience and connection and craving hospitality and I want to leave the house and have someone take care of me. But I don't necessarily, like I'm not going from eating a salad to like a 30 course menu that doesn't bring me joy. It's the connection around the table that brings me joy. And that's the thing Mm -hmm. that I'm missing more than the food itself. Yeah. On the other hand, I do think on the other side of this, people are going to be very excited to go back out to restaurants. Mm -hmm. But I... I only know what I want and what I crave. I will not dine out as much when this is completely over as I did before. I say completely over. I'm talking about yeah. make-believe world where <laughs> there's no mass. Like everything's back to normal. I don't know what, whether that'll come. But I still won't dine out as much because I've fallen back in love with the simplicity of my home table. Mm-hmm. I enjoy playing a board game and having dinner with my friends or my wife. And, mm-hmm. and I will want to save space for that, even when going back to restaurants exists. And so I think people are just going to go out to restaurants a little bit less. And if you're not at restaurants as often making some of the times that you do go out to restaurants, like a real experience, mm-hmm. I could see that being something that people really crave. That if you're going to go out, if you're not going to, everyone knows how to make a pizza at home now. Like I've, not everyone, that's a ridiculous statement, but a lot of people know how to make bread. They know how to make pizza. They know how to roast a, a great chicken or make steak. I think America has learned how to cook a little bit in the last few months in a way that it never had before. <laughs> and so there's, you need to kind of go pretty deep to find a restaurant that is creating something that you have no chance of replicating at home. And so that's just, I, I could argue it, just as passionately in either way. Yeah. And, I'm, and I really don't know. Yeah, I will I, say that like, in my experience, like with fine dining, it's actually the second tier of fine dining restaurants that most of the really rich people go to. Like the, the super, super rich don't want to sit at a restaurant for four hours. Yeah, they'll just have a private chef at their Hamptons home. Or no, but, or they'll go to like an a la carte restaurant where they can buy a crazy bottle of wine. <laughs> For two hours. Okay. And I I mean that, like, the really, really rich people, we saw them once. Interesting. That's very interesting. Also, your point of liking to spend more time at home or just enjoying your home table, I think that's interesting, but I actually think there's going to be, the restaurants will continue to play a role in that. I think takeout will remain big. And, like, sort of this restaurant meal kit idea, I think, might remain post-pandemic. You know, it's like, not everyone... Especially when we are able to kind of return to the social lives we once had. Not everyone is going to, or and, and a lot of people back to work, like physically, you know, they're not going to want to spend all the time prepping, baking bread, you know, 
pizza dough requires like good pizza dough requires like a good overnight rise, right? Like not everyone has that patience, but like maybe you do want to eat it at home, you know, and like someone you can pick up a kit where the dough is made for you and you kind of stretch it out and like do it. I do it at home and you want it from like your favorite restaurant. I've, I mean, I've had a couple of those meal kits and I've just loved it. Yeah. Right. I love like being at home in the comfort of my own surroundings, like genuinely connecting without the distraction of people dropping food on my table a bunch of times and interrupting conversation, but like getting to still have a legit meal. Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, I don't know about you, but like, I don't always, (laughs) I will say I really love just having access to like, my home bathroom and stuff, you know, during a meal restaurant bathrooms, not always great, especially in New York city when they've been like, <laughs> they're like the size of a closet, like down three sets of stairs. And you're like, where am I? Like, I just <laughs> don't want to deal with that. And like <laughs> a nice advantage. People don't think about it enough, but yeah. So I think that is sort of like part of a business model that will remain. I'm hoping to see like an overhaul of business models from what we've kind of seen in the past maybe sort of more co-op based models. I don't quite know what that's totally going to look like. I think there's a lot of people that are trying, you know, attempting to figure it out. I think some uh, restaurants might also have like a community based arm where, you know, it is sort of like a WCK funded kind of thing or like a, a big donor funded kind of thing where they're still regularly. So they have, you know, kind of their typical restaurant side, you know, where they're serving clients or uh, customers and diners. And then this other side where their kitchens are still making food for the community and feeding people that are not actually able, you know, to provide that are, you know, struggling with food. Insecurity. I think I agree with you a hundred percent. There's, that's also a part of how the business model gets worked out a little bit as people like can do good can keep their kitchens full more often, more mm-hmm. hours of the day. It brings in enough money to offset the labor because you're trying to employ people and there's a tax basis there and it, you can pay all of that forward to actually doing the things that everyone's always wanted to do. Yeah. I mean, the thing that's been crazy is in this season, it's been revealed, okay, everyone, you talk about COVID and individuals, mm-hmm. that an individual can really be impacted by COVID if you have underlying issues, right? Mm-hmm. It's the same reason why the restaurant business went down so fast. Forget about injustice within the business. But the reason the restaurant business, so many restaurants are closing is because there were underlying issues in the business model for a really, really long time. Oh, yeah. 100%. It was already a broken system. And this was just the tsunami that crashed it all. Yeah. And so the great challenge right now is reaching pay equality and all of these things that should exist from a business that has no more points in their bottom line to do it with. Mm -hmm. And so it has, it's going to have to be a very, very holistic thing that everyone contributes and becomes a part of. Yeah, I agree. And I think diners are going to have to get ready to pay a bit more. You know, I think that is, but I think people are actually maybe, I think people are starting to become ready to pay a bit more, at least the people that are conscientious of these kinds of things. I don't but think then it's, it's also coming at a time when no one, when a lot of people just don't right. have money right now. Right. Yeah, that's very true. And I think it's easier to kind of make that sell when someone is selling $18 plates of pasta and they bump it to $24, right? That difference is a little bit easier to swallow versus someone who's used to dollar tacos and suddenly your dollar taco, if you actually factor in, you know, the human cost of everything and you pay what you should be paying for labor, et cetera that taco might need to cost $5. And like that, I think is a much harder jump to swallow. Yeah. Okay. Speaking to, we're going to, we're going to transition to lighter stuff here. (laughs) 
talking about delivery of meal kits. And yet you have not been in New York City or Los Angeles. And so where have you been eating when you're not cooking at home? Uh, Taco Bell. Yeah. Okay. What's your go-to order at Taco Bell? You know, I was always a Crunchwrap Supreme girl. I have very... Well, now they took potatoes off the menu. This is how up-to-date I am. I'm like... (laughs) (laughs) So fucked. And I hate it. It goes against a lot of things I believe in. Like, I just don't... You know, I struggle a lot with the the morality around chain restaurants and, you know, their labor practices. I don't believe in a lot of them. Uh, their supply chain practices, I also don't agree with a lot of them. And so, yeah, you know, but here I am, desperado to, like, not be in my parents' house uh, for a minute. So, yeah, I really like the cheesy bean and rice burrito. I think it just kind of hits every mark, you know, that I, that I want. It's also one of the cheapest things on the menu. Here I am <laughs> talking about how we need to be paying more. I would pay more for it. I, let me just put that on the record. But yeah, it's a lot of Taco Bell. No, so, you know. Well, let me, can I just say something? So A, I, yeah. I have a secret love for Taco Bell. <laughs> to the point that for my first wedding anniversary, we were in the Hamptons doing EMP Summer House. And uh-huh. I asked the cooks to help me put together a surprise picnic for my wife. They knew about our collective secret love for Taco Bell. And they made an entirely from scratch Taco Bell Ooh. picnic for us to have. I took a picture of Christina eating one of the tacos, which was fully labeled Taco yeah. Bell Crunchwrap Supreme or something. I forget what it was. And I posted on Instagram and I was contacted by the chef of Taco Bell. And we went out and my surprise for her for her birthday was I said, we we're going to a restaurant and we actually went to the test HQ? kitchen to HQ. I've been there. Um, <laughs> and it was one of the most magical experiences of my entire life. I got, to, it was like a full Taco Bell line and wow. we just got to create stuff for a bunch of time. Anyway, this is all coming full circle to this, which is, it would take far too long to explain why, but yesterday I was on the phone with him. Uh, his name is Renee. He's the executive chef of Taco Bell. I was asking him for something. I needed some help with something. And he told me that his daughter has a cell phone, his wife has a phone, and he has a phone. And every single time when we at the Independent Restaurant Coalition send out like a an ask for people to support the Restaurants Act, mm-hmm. he gets every single one of the cell phones in their house and calls the congressperson from <laughs> each one of the different phones. Okay. And so like... It just reminded me that people have a lot of opinions on these big chains, but within them are like so many amazing people who just love our industry. Yeah. And there's just a beautiful moment of appreciation that I had that I, I wanted to share. I agree. I love Taco Bell. I just wish they would, you know, pay their workers more. Like, <laughs> just, <laughs> you know, they make such great cheesy bean and rice burritos. Okay, give me one more, and then I have, and then I'll ask my last question of this interview. Ooh, I mean Mexican pizza beans instead of beef. I'm gonna make a whole T-shirt line that says. Oh no, I meant what other restaurant? <laughs> what What is the other place? What's your other go-to? She's like, she's like, I just want to keep on talking about Taco Bell. Actually, no. <laughs> uh, I, you know, great question. I honestly have just there's a, a michigan-based pizza chain that oh. does detroit style pizzas it's called jets pizza they just opened one in new york actually or they were in the process of opening and then the pandemic hit i didn't realize detroit pizza was a thing growing up i just thought like well oh, well it's just square pizza versus round pizza like this is just yes. one thing it's not i grew up very spoiled i realized a couple years ago when uh, detroit pizza wasn't a thing that you could find everywhere now you can thankfully but yeah so we order from jets 
Judd's Pizza. Yeah. So no, but I think I'm gonna start making regular drives. I'm a, I'm right by Michigan State University right now, which is about an hour from Detroit and like 45 minutes from Ann Arbor. And so I'm gonna start making regular drives to Detroit and kind of go check in on places like Sister Pie, et cetera, yes. and see what they're doing. Cause yeah, I'm not <laughs> I'm a little bit overcooking somewhat, but my I'm also very lucky that my mom is an incredible cook, an incredible Indian cook also. And so I'm just very spoiled on a regular basis right now. Like I just sit in my room, like writing words a day. And then I come home to like, or go downstairs to like hot dinner just made for me. I love it. (laughs) And so, yeah, not, not a lot of restaurants. You got your mom's like Bob Budgie that you can come down to. Yes. My last question. I said before, I think that my dad says the secret of happiness is having something to look forward to. Mm -hmm. That's one of his favorite quotes. What are you looking forward to the most on the other side of this? I honestly really miss, <laughs> I just would love, I can't wait to sit at a restaurant again and get an order of just freshly fried fries, like that hot from the fryer restaurant fry with like the little metal tin of aioli. Like there is, it's just such a specific, you can't replicate that experience at home. Like I don't want to go through the work of trying to replicate that experience at home. That and like with a really cold glass of like bubbly wine of some sort, you know, like a, my parents also don't drink or allow alcohol in the house. So I've been completely, Whoa. <laughs> I've had no alcohol since I left New York. And so I think maybe that's also why like the phrase juicy pet nat just kind of keeps swimming in my brain. <laughs> uh, way that sounds very obnoxious, but like, it's me just, please. I would very like that. And like a very good Caesar salad, like perfectly dressed that moment like solo i don't want to be with anyone either like i just want to be by myself (laughs) then i'll go see people that's fine but that i've been talking about connecting with loved ones around the table you're like i want to be by myself don't touch my wine the french fries are mine get away from my caesar salad i kind of i actually really miss that solo dining experience there's something so wonderful about just like maybe because i travel so much for my job you know and it's like I'm very lucky to have a lot of friends and family and, and know a lot of people around the country. But, you know, sometimes I do end up eating by myself, you know, in the process of doing three dinners a night and re- for research. Not everyone wants to eat three dinners a night. Surprise, surprise. And so, yeah, sometimes, you know, I do end up eating by myself quite a bit, but I, I really enjoy it. You know, there's something just being able to like go to a different environment than the one that you've been in. I love people watching. You know, I think that's one of the really big perks of when restaurants are like really in their swing, right? Like the people watching can be really fun. Yeah, and I miss that that element a lot. You know, if I can have two things to look forward to, I was gonna go on like a big trip for like maybe hopefully like South Korea. For my, I turned 30 this year um, in October. And, you know, I was gonna go with three of my best friends on this trip. And like, I just can't wait to be able to like, just be in another country and like eat something that is not Taco Bell. It's Taco Bell India. Cause that menu looks fire. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that one, that we, that we make an ex- Actually, I love chains in other countries. I don't necessarily love chains here. And so I, I, this I, is just my favorite thing ever. All of this <laughs> is my favorite thing ever. <laughs> I can't wait. Yeah. I, you know, I thought I was going to do this big trip for my 30th birthday. At this point, I'll just be very happy if I can see one friend like IRL. It might not even happen. So, <laughs> Well, I appreciate you so much. And I'm really happy to meet you. And I'm grateful for your time. And happy birthday happy in advance. Birthday. It's not that far away. It's... <laughs> We're talking about that. <laughs>
Yeah, no, thank you. I hope we can uh, like hang out IRL one day. Maybe I'll, like, maybe I'll share fries with you. I appreciate that. <laughs> maybe. You might have to get your own order. But it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for having me on. This was really fun. It was really nice. Yeah. Bye. You're the best. Thank you so much for tuning in. This show is produced by the Welcome Conference team, including Aaron Ginsberg, Anthony Rudolph, Sandra DiCapua, and Brian Canlis. And our music is courtesy of Aaron Raytier. Special thanks to our creative collaborators at Resi. And thank you to our longtime partners at American Express and Sam Pellegrino for their unwavering support. During a time when we're not able to come together in person, it's that support that allows us to connect with you here. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And to learn more about the Welcome Conference, visit welcomeconference.org or find us on Instagram at Welcome Conference. It's the weekly specials. Do, do, diddle, do. Weekly specials. Good news coming at you. The weekly specials.